are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up and welcome to another Monday edition of Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. I'm your Monday host, Jackson Gatlin, also host of Locked On Rockets right here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Today, I'll be chatting with Cyrus Sotts from Locked On Warriors. The finals shifts back to the Bay for the pivotal Game 5. What do Steph Curry and the Warriors need to do to secure a 3-2 series lead? Then we'll be joined by Walker Mail from Locked On Hornets. The Hornets hire Kenny Atkinson as the successor to James Borrego in Charlotte. What makes Atkinson the right guy for LaMelo Ball and the job in Charlotte? Lastly, Ryland Styles of Locked On Thunder stops by as the OKC Thunder have four picks in this year's NBA draft at 2, 12, 30, and 34. Is Chet Holmgren a lock at number two? Could we see the Thunder trade up? and be in play for a guy like Shaden Sharp or possibly Jalen Duran. As always, we appreciate you for making Locked On NBA your first listen each and every day, free and available on all platforms. Also on YouTube, just go to YouTube, search Locked On NBA. Now, today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has covered the season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online, it's where the game starts. Joining us now is Cyrus Satsas from Locked On Warriors. You can follow on Twitter at Dog Surf Roadshow, which again, Cyrus, is one of the best Twitter handles that we have on this entire network, <laughs> Thanks, if man. I do say so myself. But Cyrus, w- when we look at the game four in this final series, Steph Curry was just, no. there's no way to put it, he was sensational. He had 43 points, 10 boards, 4 assists on 14 of 26 shooting from the floor, 7 of 14 from 3 you know, he he wound up joining Michael Jordan and LeBron James as the only players aged 34 or older with at least 40 points in a finals game. Cyrus, was that one of, if not possibly, the best playoff performance we maybe have seen from Steph Curry, considering the weight of, of being down 2-1 at the time and possibly going down 3-1 had the Warriors not won that game? Yeah, I, I think ultimately it remains to be seen where that game will rank simply because um, I mean, the series has to finish first. So if they end up like losing this series, I don't think it'll carry the same cachet. But if they win the series, I've been saying, I mean, at least here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, he's approaching like the top tier of sports lore in terms of like just the biggest superstar athletes. I mean, I mean, what he did in game four was akin to like Joe Montana, you know, winning Super Bowl, throwing a TD pass to John Taylor, Steve Young beating the Cowboys in the NFC championship game. I mean, you know, and Joe Montana again with the catch in 81, like it was, it was that special. I mean, I mean, the whole Bay area is still buzzing from it. Um, And it also like clearly resonated on the other side of the ball because I've never seen um, in a, that, at that of loss, he was was at a loss for words. I've never seen him like that. I, you know, to see players like Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart just kind of tip their cap, which I, I, it was crazy. It was crazy to see the reactions from the other side because I, I I don't think the Celtics had like a down game. They were trying to win that game. I think they understood the magnitude of it, the gravitas of it, and um. But but at the same time, it's like you know you know Steph in the 2019 NBA Finals had a 47 point game where they lost. Um. So even though they won this game, I mean I think they have to still win the series for for us to truly determine where that ranks. But I mean, I'm also very confident that that game was, is, is, or was the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, shifting the series. And I'm very confident the Warriors are going to pull this now. So, um, yeah, if they win this series, absolutely. This goes, this is, this was the biggest game of his career. 
Um, and I think this is one of the, the all-time NBA Finals games. I mean, this was like very Jordan-esque, like Kobe Bryant-esque. Like, I mean, when you talk about the biggest stars in the game, I'm curious to see if like other, you know, uh, like national media pundits will kind of change their tune a little bit because it's one of the biggest critiques, sorry to be long-winded here, but one of the biggest critiques of Stephen Curry has always been like whether or not he can carry the Warriors, you know, on his back himself. And, you know, he's always had usually like a partner or two to help him out. And I mean, he did this on his own. I know Wiggins had a huge game and Looney and players like that, but this was a Stephen Curry game. And to do it in the garden was just insane. Incredible. No, and I, I think what's even crazier to think about is regardless of who wins this series, Warriors or Celtics, I mean, there's a firm argument that Steph Curry, period, has been the best player in the series so far. We could see one of the first, you know, finals MVPs go to if the Warriors wound up losing this series, if Steph continues up the way his, he's been playing. It, it, it'd be crazy to see, but, you know, handing out the finals MVP trophy to the guy who didn't win the finals hasn't happened in a long, long time. In fact, I should yeah. have prepped that before we even hit, start, hit the record button. I went Jerry I, West. I think Jerry West. Was it Jerry was West? The, okay. There I we think go. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I know Jerry West did win an MVP when he lost, but I, I don't know if that's the only other time. I, I, I haven't done my research on that yet. Yeah. Either. Yeah. Sorry. Don't, don't quote us on that on this podcast yeah, yeah. where we're using <laughs> our voices where you have the receipts, but I, I, I digress here. You know, uh, in addition to Steph's amazing performance in game four, kind of this has been a running theme maybe throughout this final series. But at one point in game four, Steve Kerr elected to take Draymond Green off the floor for an extended stretch there in the fourth quarter, which was a ballsy decision that clearly paid off for the Warriors. Yeah. But how frustrating has, has Draymond's kind of inconsistent play been so far this final series? And what does he need to do better here in this pivotal game five right around the corner? Well, I mean, his mom is even tweeting that she doesn't know what's going on. Um, I, I I don't think anyone really knows. I I, I was, you know, I recorded uh, a new episode of Locked on Warriors today, and um, Kylan Milton and I talked about this at great length because it is it is a mystery on one hand in terms of the why of it. Um, one theory I have is that he is still, despite how outspoken he is, how confident he is, he is still a human being. And I don't know if he's ever kind of had this level of, negative energy directed toward him i mean you had a crowd for two games in a row literally in unison chanting an expletive directed toward him um we've seen the the boston fans all the stories about uh, you know the various antics we've seen outside the arena in the arena um you know and i'm not i'm not saying any of it's i'm not making accusations here but i mean on national tv we did hear that whole garden say chant f you draymond over and over again um, I don't know if it caught up to him. I mean, offensively, clearly he cannot attack that paint um, with Robert Williams in there and even to a lesser extent, Al Horford. Like he he just, they got his number. Uh, he, offensively, he's stymied. Um, you know, the point totals are evident. I think he still has more fouls and points in this series, which is staggering. Um, but at the same time, uh, you're right, Kerr, it was a brash decision for him to do that. Um, not so much in terms of a logical sense. I mean, logically, it made perfect sense. But, you know, a player like Draymond with his history, with his, um, you know, the fact that he wears his emotions on his sleeve, you really don't know how he's going to react to a benching like that, that late in an NBA Finals game. And, and fortunately, he he took it and he accepted it. Um, you know, I mean, who knows what would have happened if they lost that game? I don't know if he would have been as positive, but um, it, it worked out and it, it was very astute on Kerr's part to pull him out for those offensive possessions because he was a liability and has been a tremendous liability really on both sides of the ball though. Um, but I will say this, the last three minutes of the game um, for the first time, this whole series outside of game two, he did have a good game too. I, 
I saw him finally starting to figure it out. And one thing that he started that he finally started to do that he hadn't really been doing the entire series is every time he's he's made a pass, um, for some reason he's not slipping or cutting um, under screens or, or or around the defense and getting under the rim for to position himself for offensive rebounds or for layups. Like he just keeps lingering. Um, outside the three-point line. I don't know the why of that either. No one's really asked Kerr about that. So we don't know if it's like a game plan, if it's a strategic decision. We don't know if it's Draymond just intimidated by the Boston bigs and staying out. But he finally started attacking the rim off the ball. Um, and, and seeing that was encouraging because that was the first time all series he started doing that. Um, and defensively, I finally started to see him kind of get some confidence because his defense on Jalen Brown is what's most important. Like Jalen Brown is as weird as it sounds has been beating the Warriors much more so than, um, than uh, uh, Jason Tatum. Like Jalen Brown has been the biggest Warriors killer in the series. And there's only two guys on the Warriors that can um, defend him with any uh, effectiveness. One is Andrew Wiggins, um, who's just had an incredible series. And, and then Draymond Green. I mean, and even though Draymond's been getting schooled by him, uh, none of Jalen Brown's points when Draymond's guarding him have been easy. They're going in, but they're not easy. Um, so Draymond does have some value here, but you're right. Offensively, it is wild to see him just regress because that's what we've seen. But with that said, I am very confident. And, and you know, mark the tape here. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I'm very confident that we'll in game five, we'll see the same Draymond that we saw in game two because I do think the Warriors are smelling blood in the water and they're, they're going to pounce and try to finish this thing. All right, Cyrus, what's your biggest key for this Warriors team headed into game five, the area that you need to see them heavily focus on, be it something offensive, defensive? What do you want? What do you think is the the recipe for success here in game five to take a three, two series lead? I think the recipe for success is <clears throat> for Kerr to con constantly remember that his bench is what got him this far. Um, every time uh, Kerr shortens the rotation, and what I mean by that is cutting deep into Gary Payne the second's minutes, not playing Bielitsa, um, it, it comes back to bite him. He needs to maintain that confidence because Bielitsa, for example, I mean, as crazy as this sounds, Jason Tatum in this series against Bielitsa is 0 for 5 from the field with four turnovers. Um, I don't know how that is, um, but he's he's doing wonders. And so is Gary Payne the second. So to me, the, the, it's taken four games for, for both these teams to really feel each other out, but especially for the Warriors to find that recipe, which is A, matching Robert Williams III's minutes with Kevon Looney. Um, Kerr even admitted he made a huge mistake in game three by not playing Looney enough. He played Looney, I think, 16 minutes, whereas in game four he played 27 um, Looney has been an incredible big band in this series for the Warriors. Um, he has matched Robert Williams III's toughness. So as long as you match Robert Williams III's minutes with Looney's, um, the Warriors have been able to find a nice balance there. And then they need to make sure that Jalen Brown is constantly defended by either Wiggins or Draymond Green. Um, there is no one else on the Golden State Warriors that has been able to effectively defend Jalen Brown, but those two have been doing a solid job. Um, offensively, I think they're fine. Um, you know, they're not going to score a huge amount of points. The Celtics defense is one of, I really believe, the greatest we've ever seen in the history of the game. This is a, a phenomenal defense. Um, but the Warriors, for them to be putting up 105, 107, whatever the, the totals are, that's enough because the Warriors have a great defense of their own. Um, so I think as long as they maintain 
you know, uh, trust in their bench. And as long as they maintain those specific defensive assignments, um, Clay Thompson is another one who, uh, when he guards Al Horford, um, Horford has been shut down. And um, so when, when they stick to that, it works. They win. And when they when they stray from that, and what I mean by that is when they start putting Clay on Tatum, when they start putting Clay on Jalen Brown, um, when Looney is on the bench more, when you're not seeing Gary Payne the second and Billy to play, that is when the Celtics have been uh, opportunistic, opportunistic, and uh, winning games. So, um, but the Warriors have found the formula, and uh, the Chase Center crowd is going to bring it. I have no doubt in my mind that that place is going to be rollicking in Game Five. And um, yeah, I think they found the formula, and hopefully they they stick to it. It's now a best of three series. Both teams have won on the other team's home floor. Can the Warriors take a 3-2 series advantage here in game five? Of course, you're going to have us covered for all of that and more over at Locked on Warriors. Cyrus, I appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with me. Jackson, anytime, man. Thank you so much. Coming up, the Charlotte Hornets hired Kenny Atkinson as their new head coach. Is he the right guy for the job? Is he the right head coach for LaMelo Ball? But first, a quick message from our friends over at Truebill. Because do you know why free trials renew without your consent? It's a business scam out to get you. Don't let greedy corporations pocket your hard-earned money. Download Truebill to finally take control of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, want, or Simply forgot about, look, I hate to admit it, but that's happened to me before. On average, people save up to $720 per year with Truebill because companies make subscriptions so hard to cancel. Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap, one click, one button press. It is that easy. Don't fall for any more subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash LockedOnMBA. Go right now. That's Truebill.com slash LockedOnMBA. It could save you thousands a year. That's Truebill.com slash LockedOnMBA. And continuing on here at Locked On NBA Monday. The Ultimate NBA Mock Draft starts June 16th with over 50 insiders. Nothing equals the Ultimate NBA Mock Draft. The Locked On NBA Big Board Draft Experts plus the Odyssey Insiders. First pick is June 16th. Search Ultimate NBA Mock Draft and follow now so you don't miss a single pick. Joining us now is Walker Mail from Locked On Hornets. You can follow on Twitter at Walker Mail. Now, Walker, the Hornets... Head coaching search has finally come to an end with Kenny Atkinson coming out on top, but it was between him and, and Mike D'Antoni of all people there at the end. What do you think gave Atkinson the edge over MDA here, you know, at the end of the hiring process? I think it's the fact that there's actually some defensive prowess with Kenny Atkinson with the way that those numbers improved uh, during his tenure with the Brooklyn Nets when he was a head coach there. When he was a head coach with them, he was able to bring the defensive efficiency, the defensive rating up quite a bit to be a top 10 team. I think that probably had a lot to do with it. There also is the strong ability to develop those players, right? Kenny taking over for a Brooklyn team that almost wasn't playing for anything. It was a complete rebuild. That was during the era of when it didn't matter if you were losing, you couldn't tank because all those picks were going to Boston. And it was really tough during those times with that organization. You finally get 42 wins. You get into the playoffs. Just, um, and after you know getting to the playoffs, you do have that first round exit, but still pretty impressive. Then Kyrie Irving comes in, Kevin Durant. We all know the story of how those guys probably wanted a, a different head coach. And that's how Kenny Atkinson um, 
you know, exited that organization. But at the same time, I do think that the ability to develop the players, I think the fact that he's been with a, a lot of smart head coaches, you know, served uh, time under Mike Budenholzer, uh, coached with Ty Lu and Steve Kerr over the last couple of years as an assistant on both of those stats, um, staffs, I should say. So, yeah, I think I think just a couple of those reasons are um, are why, you know, Michael Jordan and the Charlotte Hornets decided that Kenny Atkinson is the guy. How much of a factor, too, you mentioned some of the, the the defensive accolades there, at least just the way he was able to transform that Brooklyn Nets team a little bit in his in his tenure there. But how much of a factor do you think was LaMelo Ball in this hiring decision when you look at these two candidates, two guys who are widely renowned as kind of these guard whisperer type head coaches in the association? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you were solely looking at this from a LaMelo Ball perspective, you'd probably go with Mike D'Antoni because we've seen what he's done with some of the best point guards of the past before, even turning James Harden into a point guard and making that an offense unto itself with what he was able to construct with Houston. But even if you were a little worried about Mike D'Antoni creating that offense and trying to put it there with Charlotte and having LaMelo be that guy, I, I think more so what you would have seen was more of the Phoenix Suns offense or at least, you know, have the ball moving quite a bit and, and more so, you know, working to Steve Nash's strengths, now more so working towards LaMelo's strengths. And we've seen Mike D'Antoni have a lot of success that way. That's why it's interesting. Yes, Kenny Atkinson has his guard prowess as well, um, but they decide to go with, okay, we still have some younger pieces on this roster. You still want to develop those guys as much as possible. And we don't want, you know, some of the defensive problems that have persisted so long within this Hornets organization to continue. And we felt like Kenny Atkinson is the guy. I think that was probably the difference there as we've talked about, but with LaMelo, you know, it's, I think both of these guys can benefit the star, the future star of this team. And uh, you know, maybe with Kenny providing a couple of benefits elsewhere. So does that mean, at least in your eyes, Walker, that the objective, at least next season and then in the immediate future for this Hornets team, isn't necessarily placed on, you know, making it to the playoffs, being a 7-8 seed, although that would be nice, but it, it sounds like there's still maybe a, a bit of an emphasis being placed on the developmental aspect of this young core that the Hornets have. Yeah, it, it's interesting, man, because you see James Borrego get let go. And, you know, it was a long process. I think it was nine days after the season officially ended that Mitch Kupchak, Michael Jordan, they all decided that it was time to move on. But James Borrego had shown the ability to develop players, too. We know what happened with Devontae Graham and his ability to get that second contract, even if he was traded to New Orleans. You know, we've seen some of these other guys like Miles Bridges, P.J. Washington. You know, these players have developed under James Borrego. They win 43 games. It's not enough to get to the postseason, but it was, you know, in a historically strong Eastern Conference. We hadn't seen a strong Eastern Conference like this since probably the Michael Jordan era, the the, the 90s that were taking place. And they decide they wanted to move on. Now, I, you know, the play-in tournament where they got destroyed in back-to-back -back games, once against the Hawks, once against the Pacers, I just think that was the one thing that couldn't happen, and that's, you know, a huge reason as to why they let James Brago go. But when we talk about Kenny Atkinson, you know, some of the strengths do kind of sound like some of the strengths of one James Brago. And so a lot of people were kind of viewing this as a, you know, JB 2.0 when hiring Kenny Atkinson. It, it felt like... Mike D'Antoni, that was gonna, that was my first choice between the two. Um, and it just felt like Charlotte 
wanted to take a step in order to win now, in order to get to the postseason and actually compete maybe in a first-round series. But, you know, if you actually get to that play-in tournament, then you hope to actually get to the playoffs. That's what this firing of JB seemed to me. That was the signal. And to go for a guy like Kenny Atkinson, who the most wins he's ever had is a 42-win season. Granted, Brooklyn Nets, it was, you know, what he did was incredible, right? That's why he's getting all of these shots. At the same time, it, it, it felt a little redundant. You know, I, I do think that there are some guys um, or there are, there are some reasons to like Kenny Atkinson that we've talked about. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it does seem like they want to get to the postseason. They want to compete. And ultimately, they wanted to not completely kick to the curb the player development side of things. Even though when you look at, you know, there might be some redundancy between Borrego and Atkinson, what are maybe some of those key areas, maybe some of the pitfalls that Borrego kind of faced in his tenure that you're hoping Atkinson will be able to come in and make an immediate impact in relative to his predecessor? I, I do think Kenny is somebody that, you know, he plays his best players. And sometimes I got frustrated with James Borrego and what he decided to do with his rotation. Yes, I am the cliche fan that is upset with his team's rotation. Totally. Um, but he so you right yeah right exactly but he did have these short leashes with players you know and and you would see some of these moves where he would start for instance a Vernon Carey and then he would take him out after five minutes of play and then it was really just PJ Washington playing the rest of the game or you'd see that with a Nick Richards at the backup center spot then he'd start and then really you know just kind of a mad scientist approach where he would try all of these different things sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't and you didn't necessarily know the rhyme or reason as to why he was trying a whole bunch of different stuff it, it was fun at the same time I don't know how much it allowed players to get into a rhythm and for instance I'm a big fan of Jalen McDaniels on the team I thought he should have got more playing time you know I, I thought that um, you know there there were a couple of different players over the last couple of years that was my biggest gripe with James Borrego that they wouldn't see the floor or that they couldn't get into a rhythm I do think Kenny Atkinson lets his guys you know get into a rhythm he my, if you go back to the Brooklyn days, you know, it was Spencer Dinwiddie, Joe Harris, and I think Kyrie Irving the last year that all saw more than 30 minutes a game. So, but it was only like topped out at 32, not a lot for a star, especially like Kyrie in the limited time that he played at the same time, he does divvy up his minutes well to all of the players and sets a solid rotation, you know, and of course all coaches are going to tweak that here and there, but you know exactly, all right, this is what we're going to get tonight. And I think the players probably find some comfort in that. And so those would be a couple of the differences that I see from one Atkinson and Borrego. Not only did the Hornets bring in a new head coach in Kenny Atkinson, they also have a couple picks mm -hmm. right around the corner in this year's NBA draft at 13 and 15. Now, Walker, you know, is Charlotte going to be aggressive in possibly moving up at least, you know, in the way you view things? Or are they going to maybe be content to just make those selections as they stand and if so, which prospects do you think are the most enticing at 13 and 15 for this Charlotte team? Jackson, I have no clue. <laughs> you know, like at, at first at first when you would gauge the prospects they were working out a lot of them would fall in between that 15 and 45 range they have the 13th the 15th and the 45th pick they were working out a lot of prospects that were projected to go anywhere from like 20 to 40 so that would say okay you know 
are they going to move one of these picks trying to move back a little bit later in the first round, maybe bring on a veteran because they are so hell-bent on getting to the postseason and actually competing or at least not getting blown out in another play-in game. It just can't happen again. So that was kind of the uh, direction I was going. Then they work out Mark Williams, which is the most enticing prospect. That He has a solo workout that happened on Friday. They also worked out Shade and Sharp. And look, a lot of this is just doing your due, uh, due, due diligence, right? Like Shade and Sharp is somebody that I guess could fall, but you know, that's more of a trade up type of scenario if Charlotte falls in love with them and then, okay, we'll give you these two picks to go after them. Jalen Duran is somebody that's interesting because he does fill that need at center, but probably won't fall to 13. So yeah, I, I think anything's in play. I think they could trade one or both of those picks to try to get a veteran to help them win right now. I think they could move back and feel pretty comfortable because Mitch Kupchak values these. He calls draft picks currency. He we've seen him you know workshop a couple of trades to where he's able to get second rounders as well, right? Like this, he finds the value in that. I think anything's on the table, which should make it a pretty fun night for Charlotte Hornets fans to see exactly what they're going to do on draft night. How will Kenny Atkinson be able to transform the Charlotte Hornets franchise? What will they do in the NBA draft right around the corner? You're going to have us covered for all of that and more, of course, right over at Locked on Hornets. Walker, appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with me. Yeah, it was a fun time, man. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the Oklahoma City Thunder have four picks in this year's 2022 NBA draft. What is the Thunder draft strategy? Are they a lock to take Chet Holmgren at number two in this year's draft? Could they possibly trade up or maybe even trade down? What is Sam Presti going to do? But first, a quick message from our friends over at BetOnline because BetOnline.net is your number one source for all of your sports betting stats and info. Find all the latest sports developments, news, and odds, including this year's five finals, odds, NHL hockey conference finals, Major League Baseball, and of course, all the latest fighting news from MMA, UFC, and even boxing. BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering information, including live betting, esports, the NBA draft, and more. And speaking of the NBA draft right now, you can go to BetOnline to see who is the odds-on favorite to be the number one overall pick in this year's 2022 NBA draft. Jabari Smith Jr., the favorite at minus 225 to go number one overall. Got Chet Holmgren at plus 170, and then Paolo Bancaro bringing up the rear at plus 1,000. So for all of that and more, head to their website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and action available to you. Bet online. It's where the game starts. And final segment here at Locked On NBA Monday. As always, appreciate you for making Locked On NBA your first listen each and every day, free and available on all platforms. Make sure for your second listen, you go check out the Locked On NBA Big Board podcast. Host Rafael Barlow from NBA Draft Junkies and author of the NBA Big Board newsletter is joined by Richard Stamen, Sam Ferris, and Leif Thulin, giving fans an in-depth look into the NBA draft, mock draft, player rankings, and of course, big boards. It's free and available wherever you get your podcast, wherever you listen to this podcast. Joining us now is Rylan Styles from Locked on Thunder. You can follow on Twitter at Rylan underscore Styles. Now, Rylan, in addition to just the, the copious number of future first-round draft picks that Sam Presti has amassed you know, during his tenure as the Thunder Journal manager, the Thunder have four picks in this year's upcoming draft, 2, 12, 30, and 34. We're going to focus on pick number two right here from the jump. Right now, the con the common consensus is Jabari and Chet in some order, one and two, although most of the signs are pointing towards Jabari at number one. Is it a lock 
for Chet Holmgren to be the Thunder selection at number two? Or is there an argument for another prospect like a Paolo Bancaro or a Jaden Ivey if you're the Thunder at pick number two? Yeah, you know, it's hard to call anything a lock with Sam Presti. You know that he loves to throw these curveballs, but it does feel like whoever's left of Jabari Smith Jr. and Chet Holmgren will be a member of the Thunder on draft night after Orlando's off the clock. And at this point, I mean, if you had your pick of the two, which unfortunately the Thunder aren't in that position, right? It almost makes things really easy if you're the Thunder, right? Because you're just like, all right, Jabari, Chet, whoever's left, you take the second guy and you're pretty much happy with it, right? Yeah, I think that there's really no wrong answer. For me, Jabari Smith Jr. is number one on my board. I think that he just fits seamlessly with what the Thunder are trying to do with his defense that's so versatile. Plus, he feels that shooting need and can space the floor for Josh Giddey's playmaking and SGA who was elite at driving and kicking, can set him up from the three-point line. With Chet Holmgren, you get more of an upside, but also, of course, a much lower floor if things don't go the way they're supposed to with Chet Holmgren. But I don't think you can go wrong with either one of them. They're both number one, number two on my board. So whatever Sam Preston decides is going to be good enough for me. Well, the margin for, you know difference as far as the talent in these top three prospects might be you know pretty thin depending on who you ask are, are there any potential like attractive scenarios in your mind in which the thunder could potentially trade up to that number one overall selection is there is there anything of value that you think the thunder would be willing to part with to be able to have their choice of jabari versus chet and, and, or potentially even trade down from that number two spot and maybe recoup an additional asset uh for that number two overall pick yeah, if I had to bet right now, I think that the Thunder is going to stay put at two. It's very boring. I know it's very easy to kind of make up these scenarios and put these scenarios out there because you can just fall back on the crutch of Sam Presti's a wild man and he loves first-round picks, and if he trades back, it all makes sense because Sam Presti's unpredictable. But in reality, I do think that the Thunder are just going to stay put at two and make things easy. Uh, I'm not sure that they'd even be looking to trade up, honestly. I think that they feel very comfortable with anything that Orlando does at one, no matter if they take Walker Kessler or Paul Bencaro or Chet Holmgren or Jabari Smith Jr., uh, no matter what they do, even if it's a complete disaster like Walker Kessler would have been, uh, they're going to be okay with it in OKC. So I just don't see them giving up assets to move up to number one. And I also don't necessarily buy into the smoke, although moving back to four for Jay Ivey, if that's truly Sam Presti's guy, uh, that makes a lot more sense to me than moving up. Uh, so if anything, you might move back, but I think that ultimately the Thunder stay at two. You know, shout out to uh, Richard Stamen, one of our amazing in-house Locked On draft experts. You got to check out the Locked On Big Board podcast, but he is a huge fan of Walker Kessler, of course. Now, uh, when we look at the rest of the selection that the Thunder have, Riley, you got 12, 30, and 34. How aggressive should we expect Sam Presti to be in possibly, you know, packaging those picks together maybe and trying to trade a little bit further up in the draft you know to get one of those other maybe because that 12 pick right it's kind of like just on the cusp of where some of those tier two prospects may fall kind of going off the board a little bit earlier before that you know 12th pick is on the board uh and if that's the case if you think you know Presty would be aggressive who are some of the teams that you know make sense as possible trade partners for the thunder to maybe package up some of those draft picks for so the thunder trade market's very interesting to me because I feel like the Thunder just can't be leveraged into doing anything. The big kind of worry right now for people who don't cover the team is just, you know, how can you make four roster spots? How can you bring in four rookies? Well, if the Thunder see value at all four picks, they're going to be very comfortable drafting four players. There's, there's very easy guys to get rid of both contractually and just talent-wise. I mean, you can't spend the whole year saying the Thunder are the black eye and then act like they can't make up four roster spots. So they're going to be comfortable taking all four picks if they need to. However, 
there's a lot of scenarios that I see them trading up. Uh, I think that trading up from 12 really depends on Shaden Sharp's situation. If he falls to like, you know, eight, nine, 10, especially to Washington, if you can, if you can follow that 10 range and you've only got to move up uh, that, that, that slot from 12 to 10, you give up, you know, the 12th pick, you give up Washington's pick the Thunder own to make them more flexible. And then maybe even throwing a, a Mitchie who wants to come over from the Euroleagues and is kind of a finals MVP and everything from over overseas. Maybe that gets it down to move up a, a couple spots to get Shaden Sharp. Uh, but the reality is, like I said, the leverage portion of it roster spots wise at 12, there's just too many names. And, and those names are not separated by such a wide margin to where um, it wouldn't shock me to see Johnny Davis registered at 12 on some people's boards, but others be, you know, the seventh best prospect in this draft where people like that are going to have to fall to 12 because there's just too many good names that you want to uh, put out there. Like an AJ Griffin, a Jalen Duran, a Johnny Davis, a Malachi Branham, they all can't be rising and then nobody falls to 12. So somebody good's going to be at 12. I think that it comes down to if Sam Presti's guys falling, which it seems like that might be Shaden Sharp, who Jonathan Giovanni of ESPN put out that, the Thunder have studied Shaden Sharp more than any other team in the NBA, and that Shaden Sharp's camp wants to be an OKC, which is a big deal for a small market. So if he starts to fall, then I think the Thunder will be very aggressive in going up there and trying to get him. Shaden Sharp falling to 12 might be a bit of a stretch. Now, if he falls just far enough to where he's within trade range for the Thunder, that could be a really interesting scenario for them. But Rylan, if they do hold on to that 12th pick, you know, maybe Shaden Sharp doesn't fall all the way to 12. Who's the guy, who's the name that you want to see on the board more than any other when the sun, when the Thunder are on the clock with pick 12, if they keep that selection? I really like the idea of Johnny Davis if he's there. I, I think that he just adds a element of offense that the Thunder don't necessarily have right now besides SGA. SGA is really the only guy who can go get a bucket uh, and kind of put the offense on his back in isolation. And that's great, and he's excellent at it, but nobody else on this roster uh, can truly go get you a bucket besides Trey Mann uh, off the bench. So adding just a third guy who can create his own offense and, and create it by scoring points and not by setting others up the way Josh Giddy does would be a big deal to me, would be very appealing to me in Johnny Davis because then, you know, of course, you just can get more offense from – a bucket getter and take pressure off of Shea a bit. So Johnny Davis being there at 12 would be awesome. AJ Griffin, if he falls, would be awesome. If he falls, you know, whatever the reason would be, medicals, defense, whatever. I love AJ Griffin. And then there's always going to be a subsection of people that want to see Chet Holmgren pair with Jalen Duran and the Thunder prioritize defense. And that'd be a heck of a young defensive team right there. That would be a, a front court for the ages for certain. Now, Ryan, when you look at, you mentioned this momentarily, you know, ago, just talking about the fact that, you know, the Thunder are a team that, you know, are poised to potentially bring in four rookies, right, with this year's draft. And this is a team that you look at their roster to start last year. They had, they had two thirds of their roster were guys with two or less years of experience in the NBA, 10 guys, you know, across the board. Is this a team that's almost forced to be in a position where they're about to be in like, consolidation mode where they've got to start figuring out what they're going to do with some of these young, talented pieces that they've acquired because, you know, you only have so many roster spots available at the end of the day. Yeah, I don't think that the Thunder are at that stage yet. I do understand the worry of it, but this is only the second draft of the rebuild. And when you really break down the roster and you look past the age of these guys, uh, Darius Baisley is a young guy on the roster. He has $4.2 million owed to him in 2022-23 season, but then he's a free agent. And then also, has he really shown you enough to want to keep him around. For me, I really like Darius Basley, but it's not as though he's somebody that you can't move on from. Ty Jerome is in the same boat, $4 million this year, but then he's a free agent. And to me, Ty Jerome's just not shown enough to keep him around. So him being gone for this year is an easy uh, roster spot to, to move on from. Favors is an expiring contract. Muscala is an expiring contract. Two veterans who uh, the Thunder don't necessarily have to keep around. 
around. Uh, eventually, you're going to find out you know, before these, and you're going to know whether you want to keep Pokashevsky around or not. I think that they're going to extend him whenever his contract's over after the 2023 season. But nonetheless, by that point, you're going to know if he's truly something to keep around. Other than that, you have uh, Aaron Wiggins, who is a 55th overall pick and is on non-guaranteed deals. Ovid Critchie, who was a second-round pick in 2020 uh, draft, and he's on a non-guaranteed deal. Tell Maldon, I would not be surprised to see him not even on the roster come October. So these young guys uh, are young in age, and if you keep them around, you can bank on their upside. But the only people who are indispensable on this roster is SGA, Josh Giddy, and then hopefully whoever you drafted two and 12 will also make it into that category. Trey Mann, Jeremiah Rumpsnell, two long-term pieces for me, and also Lou Dort, but Isaiah Roby, guys like that just aren't there necessarily for the long-term fit for OKC. So they haven't, they, while they've amassed young talent, they haven't necessarily amassed talent who you just cannot part from. So that's kind of where the Thunder are at right now. Is Chet Holmgren a lock for the Thunder at pick number two? What are they going to do with pick number 12? Make a selection there. Be aggressive in trading up in this year's NBA draft. Of course, you're going to have us covered for all of that and more over at Locked on Thunder. Rylan, I appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with me. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for another Monday edition of Locked On NBA. As always, thank you so much for checking out the show. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, the Odyssey app, free and available on all platforms. Also, be sure to check us out on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, search Locked On NBA, like, comment, subscribe. We do read each and every one of those comments that you post on there. We are thankful for those interactions. But as always, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to having you back right here at Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts.